You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Services Coordinator at Enoch Pratt Free Library, Jacqueline Kane. They regularly went on dates to the Pratt Library branch on Broadway in East Baltimore. So we love that library love story. <laughs> A real whole lot details the love between Philip Gow Kane and Jacqueline Norris Jones Kane, featuring the letters between the couple as Philip served in World War II. The letters are a testament of family bond, dedication, and sacrifice. And I also want to make you all aware, if you didn't know already, um, that the family papers will be added to the Beulah M. Davis Special Collections at Morgan State University. Um, So please give a warm welcome to Jacqueline Kane. Thank you. I want to first start, since this is a celebration of Veterans Day, sharing with you a little bit about my father's career as a uh, member of the Army. A member of the Army. This is a picture of my father uh, from his oops, went too far, from his yearbook, which is kind of the beginning of where these love letters start. Um, As mentioned, my parents were high school sweethearts. Um, They um, were members of the Negro History Club in high school. One of the things about my father is that you could ask him anything about black history, and he seemed to know it all. Uh, So he was, my parents decided they got married um, shortly after graduation, my father's graduation. My mother had gone to Coppin and had gotten her teaching certificate and she had been working. So when my father graduated, they got married. So this is his picture when he was uh, recruited, should I say recruited? Drafted would be the more appropriate word as opposed to uh, recruited. Uh, When he became, um, this is his picture as a private. He entered the service as a private and was discharged as a captain. Prior to going to officer candidate school, he was a staff sergeant. So here he is as a staff sergeant. He went to um, school in Mississippi to become a truck master. And he did uh, go on to serve as an acting first sergeant. When he went to Mississippi to go to truck master school, it was during the summer, and so my mother went and spent some time in Mississippi with him. These are, this is one of the few pictures of my parents together in their early um, uh, marriage. My mother hated getting her picture taken. My father, you say camera, and he would be right there with a smile posing. So there are numerous pictures of my father. Um, He then went to Officers Candidate School in North Dakota, of all places. Um, I don't think I included a picture here, but there is a picture of my father playing in the snow because it was cold. This is another picture of my father when he was in Marseille. 
He served as a junior officer overseas from May of 43 to November of 45. After completing Officers Candidate School in North Dakota, uh, where he was one of four Negroes in the class, and this was according to an article that appeared in the Afro. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant and then was promoted to first lieutenant and captain. This is a picture of him in Marseille. Uh, on the back of this picture, he says that he's walking down the street with a lawyer who he has been working with, who's recommended that he go to law school because he would make a good lawyer. And my father could argue kind of any case for you <laughs> and both sides of it. So um, he would give you the pros and cons and you know, my siblings and I would often take uh, a problem to him. And at some point we said, okay, that's enough of the pros and that's enough of the cons, you know, let's put a cap on it, that's enough. Um, so anyway, he had this ability early on. And I will say that he also participated in oratory contests. So he was quite the public speaker. And I think that was one of the reasons why this lawyer suggested that he would make a good lawyer because he uh, not only could make the argument, but that he could present it. While in the service, he supervised a stevedore battalion. As probably many of you know, um, not until towards the end of the war were Negro soldiers allowed on the front line. And most, um, most Negroes who were in the service were doing manual work in terms of doing things like being a stevedore. So I found a resume that my father wrote uh, two years after he left the service in 1948. And I know it was two years because that was back in the day when you would put your height and your weight, your wife's name, your birthday, how many children you had, where you were born and all of that. And he said he had a two-year-old daughter. So since I was born in 46, this had to be done sometime in 48. And he describes what he did as supervising the stevedore battalion in the unloading and loading of 18 ships simultaneously. Mm. Proper storage, making reshipments, redistribution of cargo, and supervised at one time the duties of nine officers, 600 soldiers, 1,000 civilians, and 1,000 prisoners of war. He served as a mess, supply, and executive officer and company commander, as well as a stevedore officer. He served as a trial judge advocate and junior member, the general courts marshal while stationed in Marseille. Through three years as a commission officer, he tells us he never received an efficiency rating of less than excellent. He served in the 571st Fourth Battalion. He was part of the Rome Arno, Southern France, Rhineland campaigns. And he was stationed overseas in Algiers, Algeria, and Marseille, France, while serving in the European and Mediterranean theater. This is one of the letters, this is called V-mail, and this is how letters were shipped back and forth between soldiers and um, their <coughs> correspondents. So this is just an example of one of the letters. 
most of the letters that survived were female. There were some that were um, paper letters, but because, of course, those are more fragile than the female. Female was like a Xerox, and it's what um, Uncle Sam used to um, send mail back and forth. And it, I suspect that partly why they did that is that the Xerox copies were a little more sturdy than um, the airline pa uh, paper. Um, and also, it was all, they were all the same size, so they didn't have to worry about handling different size envelopes. Most of the letters that survived were from my father to my mother. There is a letter in the book where my father says that he can no longer carry her letters around with him, and that there are about 500 of them, and he just has to get rid of them, and he later on says that he burns them. Uh, he said also in that letter that if he stopped to read them, he would not get, you know, he would not destroy them because he just, you know, it was hard for him to part with them. So I'm going to read uh, a couple of excerpts from the um, the book. One of them is about letters. My father writes, "Dear Jackie, when it rains, sometimes it pours, doesn't it? Today I got three letters: two in the morning, one this evening. Well, here I go, my love. Before I say a word, I don't really know how to say how much getting your letters mean, darling. Honest, darling." For all that I can say, sweetheart, there's no way I could really tell you how much I appreciate your having your mail pile up on me in this manner in which you did. Just wait until I take you into my arms, then you will know then, honest, you just wait. <laughs> my mother um, went back to Morgan, went to, I should say back to Morgan, she went to Morgan to get her bachelor's degree. And one semester, she had to keep a diary. And so there's some of the things that are included in the book are excerpts from her diary. So this is an excerpt where she writes, diary dear, no letters came again today. It's odd how letters can mean so much to a person, especially in times like these. A friendly letter, just a paper with some writing on it, a message, most of the time insignificant and unimportant in content to all but the receiver. Yet many persons are sad because they did not get one, or many are life brightened because they did get one. I wish I had gotten one today. A lot of the letters uh, from my mother in particular are pretty much about everyday things. So I'm gonna read one letter. Uh, from my um, from my father, where he is talking about every day, every day things. No, let me back up. I'm going to read one from my mother, where she's talking about everyday things. As I said, she was a teacher, so she was teaching um, while my father was overseas. She says, "I finished my report cards and all the other records today. I'm so glad. Today has been nice, though much warmer. I am most well." No mail today. I have decided to take English 103 and 104. It will help me. They're rather long. I only got 75 from Coppin. Uh, she's 
talking about transfer credits here. With the nine that I have, it only gives me 84. I hope someone who knows me will take the course too. School lasts from June 19th to the last of July. But did I tell you that once? I hope it will keep me busy enough not to be wanting you too much. Do you think that is possible? I wonder myself. But at least the time will go faster. I guess the warm weather is here to stay now. I'm sitting on the side of the bed writing this letter and keep wishing you were lying here, giving me one of those soulful and very definitively meaningful looks. You know the kind I mean? <laughs> So this is one for my father. Dearest Angel, I will say that I did not count, but I cannot, I cannot imagine how many different terms of endearment my father used in writing to my mother, but there was a variety of them. So this one starts, Dearest Angel. Honey, you sure do make me feel good. That expression is getting hackneyed, isn't it? But nevertheless, you do because every time you say how much my men like me or such and such, I really get a kick out of it. The cards that I sent you, that the fella sent me from India, are, as you say, an indication of that feeling. Also, I am glad it makes you happy. All my life consists of seeing how I can make you happier than you already are. Is that okay with you? But truthfully, I wish it could be better. I shall earnestly try to do better toward them, though. Darling, it's not against my faith, faith to wear Psalm 91. I'm sorry I gave you that idea. Ever since you sent it to me, I have been carrying it around with me everywhere I go. I have it folded neatly and placed in my wallet. It stays with me all the time. So you see, I'm wearing it, and I am taking a great deal of solace in having it with me and reading it ever so often. You see now, honey, you can stop worrying about that part of me. Not every star in the sky multiplied a million times can tell you the total amount of love I have for you. Your guy says he is mad about you. Not only that, but he also loves you a real whole lot. He said too, he'll always love you, I swear. Now this is a letter from my, another letter from my father. Again here, my darling love. Dearest, here I go. Today's our third anniversary. <clears throat> Next year, I hope we'll be together. I've thought of you a lot. This morning as I slept, <coughs> I just called out your name, Jackie, darling. I love you so much. I want you with all of me, honest I do. I wonder if you heard me call you, dears, through the miles that separate us. Something there, I'm sure I heard you, my sweet, with all of me, Jackie, I want you madly. I can't help it, dear, and I won't try to help it, because I always want to be completely yours. Truly, darling, that is the truth, so help me. Darling, I love you, I love you, I love you a real whole lot. I always will, my sweet. So those are a few of the letters. Um, there's one more I read from my mother. She's also talking about how they have not been together. We see two snapshots of Phil today. He looks wonderful, I thought. 
Here I am worrying myself to death about him, nerves worn to a frazzle, and he's over there looking disgustingly healthy. <laughs> we have been married for three Christmases already, and not one of them have we spent together. The first year he was in Georgia, the second year in North Dakota, the last one in Africa. I hope this year he won't stop, still be in France, but will be here instead. I wouldn't ask for anything else. This was written in November of 44, and he didn't come home until November of 45. So they had uh, another Christmas where they were separated. So those are a few of the letters. Um, as you can see, I hope you get the flavor, that in particular, my father was quite the writer. Uh, he would write letters several times a day. Um, they pretty much wrote to each other every day. Uh, there is one letter where he says that he hasn't gotten any letters, and, but he doesn't have time to go down to the post office or the postmaster, whatever they call it, to find out where his letters are because he knows my mother has written him some and he's due some of those letters. <laughs> um, and towards the end of the book, in terms of letters, my mother mentions, because she has moved to New York by the end of the book, uh, by uh, in September of 45, she moves to New York. She wanted to go to graduate school, and at that time in Maryland, um, Negro students could not go to state colleges. And there was a program where I believe they would pay tuition for students to go elsewhere. And my mother opted to go to NYU. So she was living in New York um, when my father was discharged from the army. So he came to New York and that's where they stayed. So that's where I grew up is in New York City. There was a thought I had about something in particular that I wanted to share about the letters. Oh, I know what it was. She makes a comment to my father about how uh, a friend of hers brings her a pile of letters that he had sent to her at her previous address in Baltimore and hadn't caught up with her and he did not have a correct address. So for a while, people who were coming through New York would bring letters to her that had come from my father. So um, they were quite prolific letter writers. Uh, some of the materials in the archives at Morgan, at the Brewer Davis Center, are um, drafts of letters where my father would write a letter, he would give it to my mother, my mother would make her comments, and then he would write the formal letter, um, which I thought was kind of interesting, and I'll say this about my mother in particular. She thought that one copy of something was good, a hundred was even better. Mm. So a lot of things that we, my siblings and I, had to go through were multiple copies of some things. But I thought it was rather interesting that my father kept drafts of letters that he had written and had memorialized my mother's contributions to the letters that they wrote. So I think maybe I will stop there and let you all ask me questions, if you have any. Yes. Oh, we're the real quick. Uh, just wait for me to come around with the mic since we are podcasting this. We want to make sure that the mic picks up. Oh. So you said there were letters in an archive at Morgan? Yes. Um, I How don't think they, they have oh. organized the materials yet. Mm -hmm. um, it was a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. My, It was kind of funny as my siblings and I went through 
my parents' papers, we found an agenda that my mother had written for a family meeting. And at the bottom of the letter, it said archives. I don't think we ever had a conversation about what would happen with my parents' papers. Okay. But as uh, Tracy indicated, my parents were big on going to the library. And so I think in a way my mother envisioned that these materials would end up in an archive. And so as we were going through them, I said, well, what am I going to do with this stuff? And I just sort of sent a note to Morgan and asked them if they would be interested in receiving my parents' papers. And they said yes. And I said, well, it'll probably take me time to get them organized. They said, no, we'll organize it. So I packed them bags <laughs> and made a trip to Morgan with all of these boxes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, would you share with us how long your father wrote letters? Because he even wrote to me when I was living in Vegas. Well, my, my, my parents in general were big letter writers. Um, I, tell, I now tell the story uh, in going through my parents' papers. I found my father's uh, graduation program for Morgan. And so I called my brother and I said, um, Philip, and my, my brother's named after my father. He's a junior. I said, Philip, what was father's major? He said, political science. I said, OK. So I called my sister and I said, what was father's major? business. I had no idea. I wasn't even going to guess. He was an English major. He always liked to write. I mean, and he actually learned calligraphy later on so that he could, you know, be artistic in writing his letters. Um, and he, both of my parents were very committed to maintaining contact with relatives. And of course, you know, back in the day when it used to cost you to make a phone call, um, a letter, you could, I guess, three cents, you could mail a letter, you know? So write a letter um, to people, and that way they stayed in touch. Yeah. Yeah. We'll come back to you, Martina. <laughs> uh, good evening. It was a beautiful talk. I had tears in my eyes as you read the letters. Just exquisite. I wanted to know, Dr. Kane, how has your father, or how did your parents' love story color the way you view love and relationships? Oh, good question. Well, let me just say, reading these letters, it was kind of interesting going back and thinking about my parents as young lovers. Now, there are some indirect sexual references in the letters, but you know these were folks who, in a way, were raised in the Victorian age. So you're not going to get too graphic. Uh, but it did make me go back and think about how they expressed love. Uh, they weren't particularly demonstrative. Um, I don't know what happened to my father, but after he retired, he started giving us all big bear hugs. And the first couple of times he did that, I said, what's going on here? So I called my sister, I said, my father's giving out bear hugs, what's going on here? <laughs> but I think partly, I mean, reflecting on my own retirement, I think there was a way in which after he retired, you know, he didn't have to constrain himself in any way, and so he could be his affectionate self. Um, 
both my parents grew up in uh, households where sparing the child, the rod spoiled the child. So there was a fair amount of physical modification of your behavior, uh, which you know often did not feel like love, although they they conveyed that that's what they were trying to do. And I think that you know as black people as you know, our experiences and the things that we would be subject to, we, they felt they had to do this in order to, be sh to make sure we were successful and survived. Um, I will say that I never worried about whether I would have food, a place to stay, uh, clothing, that I was always going to be well cared for. And, I think given their backgrounds, having been raised very, very poor, um, my grandmother, my mother's mother, would tell a story that my mother had one dress, and she would wash that dress every night. And when she needed a dress for a special occasion, she would go visit one of her aunts and borrow one of their dresses. Um, my father um, was the oldest of 12, wow. and he worked. He had a paper route, he had, I don't know what, I probably should do a little research on this, but he had the largest newspaper distribution route of the Afro. Uh, I don't know how many newspaper boys he had under him, but my aunt who's here said that the Afro would fill up the front room because that's where the newspaper boys, carriers, would come to pick up their papers and deliver. Oh. Yeah. One in the back, and then we'll come up to you. <laughs> yes, uh, good, evening. good evening. I have a question, Dr. King. You mentioned so many places that your father uh, traveled in his early military years. Was there ever writings with your mother and father back and forth with regards to what was happening in the world politically in their respective locations? I don't know. Um, as I said to you, you know, as I said, my parents wrote to each other every day. And just because, you know, my father's letters, he got overseas, there was no, no way that a lot of them would survive. I, as a young person, I saw these letters because they were in a closet in which I played on occasion. And I knew that these were letters from my parents, but at that point I did, could not read or write. So, okay, these are letters. And I just assumed these letters traveled with my parents wherever we moved. And it wasn't until we found these roughly 200 letters that I found out that my grandmother had thrown the letters away. Oh, no. And I think my mother was kind of devastated about it because, my sister tells me, my mother came home and the garbage men were reading the letters, having a good old time because here's this guy writing all this love stuff and they just can't, you know, it's like, really? <laughs> And I think my mother was so mortified that she did not try to recover any of those letters. Because I think at that point she probably could have recovered most of them, but it was just like too, way too embarrassing for her 
to retrieve the letters. So most of the letters that would survive were the female letters, which were used from 43 to 45. So up to that point, they would have used paper, and though very few of those uh, survived. Now you also have to recognize that during this time, during the war, there was censorship. And there are some references in the letters about how my mother doesn't know what my father's doing, my father's saying that he can't tell her X, Y, Z, because I think they learned what they could tell and what they couldn't tell. Um, there are only two references in the book to racism. Uh, one is uh, my father's giving my mother's direction on how to get to Virginia to visit him. And he is telling her, you're gonna have to change cars in, I think, D.C., because you're gonna have to get on the back of the train. You have to go look for the uh, colored taxi stand, you know, that kind of thing. The other reference he makes is at near the end when he's looking to come home, someone comes and says, are you ready to go home? And he says, yes. So the person says, go down to the dock tomorrow and you'll be able to board the ship. So he writes back, he, he writes like the next day, I went down to the ship. The thing I forgot to do was paint myself white. Because they would only send um, Negro soldiers home when there were enough segregated births to allow them to come home. So if, there wasn't, if the ship wasn't segregated and or there wasn't enough room, if there were more white soldiers that weren't needed to get on board, then they were given first preference. So those are the only two things in the letters that survived where he talks about race at all. Um, I'm wondering, once you and your siblings found the letters and you read them, did that, what did, did that change anything in you or any thoughts towards your parents or just um, to, in your, you and your siblings' lives, reading letters from your parents, um, you know, as young people, newly married, I mean, what did that add to your life, if anything? Hmm. I'm not sure about my siblings. I'm almost positive that, uh, let me just say, I'm the oldest. Um, my brother is eight years younger than me, and my sister's 14 years younger than me. And one of the points I make with my siblings is that although we had the same biological parents, we all grew up in different families. <laughs> um, so I think, For my sister, I'm almost positive she hasn't read the book. My brother, I think, has only read parts of the book. I'm, needless to say, the only one that has read the whole thing, um, obviously, a couple of times. I will say that when I first found the letters, I just sort of glanced at them. And when uh, making the decision to publish the letters, I still made the decision not to read the letters until they were transcribed. I thought that I would be able to publish them as they were, but since there are a generation of people who now do not know how to read cursive writing, it would mean that it would be something that would be unavailable to them. <laughs> In addition to which, 
Um, not everybody could read my parents' handwriting. You know, I could read it because I knew it, but for someone else, it would be a little difficult to do. So uh, I made the decision not to read the letters until they were transcribed. Um, I believe that in order for me to tell my story, I have to tell my parents' story. And this is, in a way, the beginning of me telling my story. Um, because very much, you know, my parents very much influenced who I am and the things that I do and the things that I don't do. So beginning to understand them is very important for me to understand myself. Um, as we know, soldiers from World War II don't, did not talk about their experience. I think one of the things why they didn't is that they had the trip home. They had to come home by ship. And that took them time, and they could kind of debrief each other and in a way didn't feel like they needed to talk about it anymore. Plus, some of them had some pretty devastating experiences. Uh, I just recently read a book by Ashley Bryan, who is a children's illustrator, um, world-renowned. He, um, he has just written a book. It's called Intimate Hope, uh, Infinite Hope uh, from World War II something to peace. And he talks about, he was in the north of France. He was on, on Normandy, on part of the invasion of Normandy. Normandy, I'm not saying that right, my pronunciation. But at any rate, uh, he talks about the experiences of the Negro soldiers and how they, although you, know, you, don't, you don't hear this, but the Negro soldiers were the first on the beach, that they were the ones who were looking for the landmines that the Germans had buried, and that part of their, the army's movement was to remove the Negro soldiers' bodies so that there would be no pictures of Negroes being killed on the battlefield. So even that part of the contribution of Negro soldiers was um, not recognized and was not something until even recently Ashley, for example, said that he could even talk about. So fortunately, my father was not in an active battle zone, but he was involved in you know, the supply of materials for the war effort uh, in a dedicated way. I will say one thing that he said, he did tell a story about, is that Patton's army had their own special jackets. And he said that many of the men in his battalion decided that they wanted Patton's jackets and they would wear Patton's jackets. Well, you know Patton didn't have any Negroes in his, in his, um, his uh, company. And so when these soldiers were seen with these um, Patton jackets on, they were beaten. So, so a lot there. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it does, I mean, like for example, finding out that my father commanded um, had responsibility for unloading 16 ships simultaneously. Father never talked about that. Mm. I had no idea. I, you know, I knew my father uh, had management skills, 
but not to the point where he was responsible for all this, a thousand soldiers, a thousand prisoners of war. I mean, he had a lot of responsibility. And I understand that in the army doing war that, you know, people uh, have opportunities that they probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And, you know, obviously my father had the abilities, otherwise he wouldn't have gotten there. Dr. King, yes. um, your mom and dad seem to have a love for English, English language. When they start teaching, did they teach that in, in the schools in New York? Well, both of them, um, well, let me just say, my father was a daughter to a salesman uh, for, I guess, from when he was a kid until he was probably like in his mid-30s, probably. Uh, and that's when he became a school teacher. Um, I think that he began to think that the life of a salesperson was a little bit precarious and at that time my brother was born and then subsequently my sister. So I think he thought about, well, we need a little more security. So they, um, my mother continued to be a, um, an elementary school teacher and then my father became one. He eventually became assistant principal and my mother a guidance counselor. Um, I don't, you know, not having been in their classrooms, uh, I don't know how, how they conveyed their love of language and their love of writing. Uh, I know for sure that my father um, would quote Victorian poems. Um, that was one of the things I was wondering about is why this, this man who was so into being black and, you know, my, you know, there's a term that's been uh, used from time to time about uh, black folks being race people. You know, it was like, if there was ever a choice about anything, my parents chose black people. Black businesses, black doctors, black lawyers, you know, you name it, if there was a choice, there was a black person, I would just say, sort of as an aside. After my father went into the nursing home, my mother moved from the Bronx back to Manhattan at, back to Harlem in particular. And her demand was that we find her a black doctor that graduated from Howard on Meharry. <laughs> you don't know what a challenge that was. And we finally convinced her that it was all right to have a black doctor that graduated from Columbia. Okay? So, I mean, that's how deep it went. <laughs> uh, that my parents were going to support anybody who was black. So one of the things I always wondered about is how did my father get so involved in this Victorian poetry? And being an English major, I mean, he graduated from college in 1941. There was not a wealth of black poets being published, recognized, or anything like that. So as an English major, who else was he going to know but the Victorian poets? So, and I think that influenced not only the, the poets that he, the folks that he chose to memorize, like if, be happy, um, if you gotta do it, do it, um, Invictus, um, you know, these were all poems about overcoming and going on. Um, and I think that for me, my parents always had a can-do attitude, that you can do anything. Um, you put your mind to it, you can do it. Okay, so we got two more questions. 
Yeah, I just wanted you to comment on um, this continue, continuing or con continuous relationship with the United States Army. Oh yes. Oh, that's right. I guess I should say that. <laughs> After uh, he left active duty, he became a member of the reserves and uh, served in the Army Reserves Intelligence Retirement where he retired as a lieutenant colonel. I will tell just a little side story. Uh, in his reserve unit, there were a number of black men, and several of them went on to become generals. And so at one point, I asked my father, well, you know, why didn't you become a general? And he said, it's not worth it. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> he said, I did what I had to do. And my understanding is that in the military, you have to make certain ranks within certain periods of time. And my father would always do it at the very last minute, you know, that he, he did what he had to do, but sort of minimally, and particularly after he got out of active duty, because he, you know, part of, I think, him being in the reserves was the fact that he knew that he would be able to have an army retirement, and that if, and he would say this every once in a while, and I don't know if he would be nervous about this now, but that uh, in order for him not to have any money, the world would have to go to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> so that was like his safety net to know that he had that relationship with the military. Yeah, Lynn? Yes. I'm gonna introduce my own self. Okay. I'm Philip Payne's baby sister, and I'm number 11 out of 12. <laughs> and next month I'll be 83. I can remember back when I was four or five years old, and your father and your two uncles under him spoiled us younger children to the point where they called us the little folks. My mother said, no, they're not little folks. They are the ones who attain up this house. And so he said, Mom, that's all right. He said, let them go ahead. They're expressing themselves. So she told my father that Philip must be crazy. And so, but anyway, but I remember Philip as a purpose-driven person from when I even couldn't go to school. You couldn't be registered for school until you were six years old. So Philip went into the army. I can't remember the date. Can you already told me what it was? But I can't remember the date. At any rate, I was always home. And Philip would go out and come back with something in a box. He bought the first iron we ever had. Now remember, it was 12 of us. He bought the first iron, electric iron, rather. My mother had been ironing with the smoothing arms, they called them, they were real heavy, cast iron. And I think my father had found them somewhere, um, you know, where he worked. He worked in what they called Monumental Iron and Steel Company. And um, he worked there until he retired, about 40 years. But Phil brought that. Then the next thing we knew, we had a telephone. We said, wow, we're really moving up. Mm -hmm. Boy, so my older sisters, two of them, Clementine and Emma, they would call their boyfriend and all like that. But you had a party line, and the party line was cut in. Excuse me, my wife is going to the hospital. Well, that was a tale, but still, <laughs> you had to get off that phone, I know that, or they'd call on you. And so, we had our first phone. All right, it looked like everything that was a first, Philip started it. Then the next thing we knew, typewriter came in, brand new. Wow, I thought something played with it, and I got a beat for that, so I left it alone. <laughs> so, Phil was always upstairs typing, typing. So my mother said to my father at the supper table, you know, you don't talk to your children. 
I believe he's going to be a businessman. My mother said, yes, sir. he's either going to be a businessman or a piano player. And so <laughs> she positioned that to be like he, you know, tapping up there. He not really doing nothing. Philip was brilliant. He could recite poetry. And we children, we were the four younger ones, Michael and Allie, Madeline, and Edna. And we were called the little folks. In other words, we were called the house wreckers. We tore up everything. We tore the sofa because we were very, we did somersaults. That's how you learn. <laughs> My mother said, get out of that living room. You know you showed up playing in the living room. Well, we had already tore it up, so we just went all out. Okay. Now, Phil would say to my mother, or Ma, he say, they just as nice as they can be. She said, Phil, have you lost your mind? She said, you know them children are bad. He said, Ma, don't beat them. He said, no, no, don't spike them. He said, expressing themselves, that's what you call it. She said, well, this is new. So she said, I never expressed myself like that. But getting back to the hard facts, Philip and my brother J.C., which is John Henry Kane, used to speak in French to each other. I'm gonna get back to myself when you hear this. And boy, when they called home in the war, they would always speak in French. I said, they sound crazy. So one day, my brother said, put Aiden on the phone. And he was speaking, come and all this. And I said, J.C., what do you think you're saying? He said, Edna, he said, I'm in Normandy. He said, we're speaking French. I said, that is nice, what is that? And so he explained everything to me. And they, they took time with us, man, I'll tell you that right now. That's something that's missing. They took time to explain everything and made you stop and listen. So it's not look like they that. I'm like, they were the school teachers, you know? And so, when he said, Edna, he said, I'm gonna teach you that when I come home. I said, okay. I said, whatever it is. I said, it sounded like Tim Latin to me. Yeah. But, you know, that's the slime, exactly. Okay, when they came home, JC continued speaking in French. Philip speaking in French. And I asked my mom, I said, something wrong. I said, why are they speaking like that? We don't even know what they're saying. She said, well, you'll never know. She said, that's, that's just, you know, between them. Well, years and years and years and years later, I went to Morgan State University. One of my brothers, they won't admit which one, sent us to college, the little folks. I received my bachelor's from Morgan State University in what would you say? French. <laughs> I just fell in love with it. I don't know. And my mother said, That's what I want to understand. I said, Well, I don't speak French to you. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, and just shut up, will you? I said, But mom, I know it. I said, That's what JC used to tell me. Every time they called home during the Second World War, they were speaking in French. And so I said, wow. It just, I don't know, it just stuck with me. And so that's so when I became a teacher, 38 years. <laughs> and I, I thank them for that because they, they gave us part of themselves. In other words, I'm saying, don't be a dummy. Learn something different. But this was across the water. I said, who am I going to meet that, that's French? Well, my French teacher, Morgan, was. <laughs> so, but they helped a lot. They bought the ironing board. They bought groceries. They bought coffee. They showed me what teamwork is. As a family, we were never hungry. We had bread. We had anything we want. Vegetables, everything. And we kept the street clean. My father said, that's your duty. We kept the street clean. We walked everybody's steps. They told us to walk. And everybody had a big family. So when Philip would come home, boy, he, he really sugared us up. 
Oh, it's so smart, you growing. Look how pretty you look. Everything was a compliment. And I just thought I was really somebody. <laughs> and that stuck with me. So when I began to teach, I told, I did that to the children. I said, no, sweetheart, you learn. I said, oh, I said, listen, you got it. Go ahead, beautiful. You got to learn those words and use them. These children need to hear that. They need to hear it to somebody. Not a sit-down boy, shut up. No, don't use that. Don't use that. Because I wasn't taught that. Oh, sit-down, shut up. I did get a few spankings. Uh, uh, that may be a tale, but anyway, I, I, saw, <laughs> I got a whole lot of them, as a matter of fact. And uh, so my brothers and my sisters, they showed us in that big family all kinds of hope. So, hey, my sister Madeline went to school. She got her piece of paper. That's my mother called. But you got that piece of paper now. As important as a degree is, she called it a piece of paper. I had to look at my mother, shake my head. But my mother went to the eighth grade, and my father, I think, went to the fifth. But they were smart. He said, your mother's not going to work ever. And my brothers made sure of that. My third oldest brother, Jimmy, he went next door, bought a home. Then he kept buying it. Then he kept buying plenty property. So we didn't hunger for anything. Books, clothes, transportation. We grew up, I say, not snotty, I won't say that, but we grew up knowing that we had something. But you got to give something back. Got to give it back. It's duty bound. And that's it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I will just add, I didn't mention this, that my mother was the oldest of five, four, who survived. Um, and when my father died, my parents had been married for 66 years. Wow. So, we get the beginning here, and one of the things I think is that, you know, because they were separated, uh, they knew that they had to work at their relationship, and they did. Uh, one of the things that they regularly did, at least once a year, would be to go and spend a weekend at a hotel mm. where they would kind of catch up with each other and make plans <laughs> for the year. <laughs> so I think I would suggest that to any couple, you know, that particularly when you have children, that you know you need to renew your relationship. And my parents did that. And, they, um, my mother, you know, felt that she was still married, even though my father pre, um, pre um, passed before she did. He was 89, she was 98. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Miss Kane, and thank you all for joining us. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.